Raise your hand if you were able to think of some time this last week when you said, I'm sorry. All right, some of you, raise a hand if you're able to think sometime this last week when you said, I forgive you. Anybody? All right. I wonder, is it harder to give or to receive forgiveness? Is it harder to give it or to receive it? Welcome. My name's Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus. I'm glad you're here. It's so good to be here with you in this place. It's great to be here with you in this moment. I'm glad you've, cho- you've chosen to be a part of this gathering with us, and I hope that it's encouraging to you. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. If you're here, we'll give you a copy. Also, sermon notes we've got. Thanks, guys, for being available. I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Daniel, which is tail end of the Old Testament. In just a minute, we're on the downhill slope of our fall teaching series, which is a phrase by phrase treatment of the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It begins, Our Father. And I don't know if you heard, but there's a presidential election coming up in a few days. It hasn't gotten a lot of media coverage or anything, so it'd be, it'd be okay if you didn't know about it. But uh, this is happening earlier in the summer uh, when I was scoping out this series on the Lord's Prayer, I knew when it would start. I didn't really know when it would end. I thought it would probably end sometime around Thanksgiving because there were some moving parts. About a month ago, I realized that the Sunday that we would preach on the phrase, deliver us from evil, would be the Sunday following the presidential election. Yeah, so I considered changing it, and then I thought, well, maybe this will be fun. You know, maybe we should just stick with this. All right? Anyway, I just want you to know this is just the way it plotted out. So, to be clear, on November 8th, the, the Sunday after the presidential election, I will be preaching on the phrase, deliver us from evil. And I want you to know that this was scheduled way ahead of time. This is not a reaction to whoever wins, assuming there will be a conclusive like winner uh, Sunday after that Tuesday. This is just a heads up for you because I don't want to, uh, you know, it's a heads up for my critics, right? It's just a coincidence or it's divine providence, however you want to see it, this is not going to be a reaction to any individual um, or any, you know, specific result. I'm already mourning the result either way, just to be transparent with you, all right? I am, I'll tell you why I am in, in a second, but I'm already mourning it. First, let me say I'm surprised at how much I've enjoyed preaching and preparing for this series on the Lord's Prayer. I'm very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that I pray consistently. And so I kind of felt like, well, I know what this is going to be about. But every week I'm learning so much more and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to slow down a prayer that I have become accustomed to praying very quickly. Because the, the richness in it is so powerful to me. I think familiarity with this prayer is a good thing. I think memorizing the Lord's Prayer is a good thing. I think praying the prayer every day is a good thing. Um, and having this prayer right at my side, right alongside me, right near my heart, close at hand for the last several weeks and months, really, it's been a good thing. It's also been a really challenging thing, and today's no exception. Today we're looking at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is the fifth request in the prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a, it's an address, our Father followed by seven petitions or requests, and then a close. And the fifth request is, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Some people say, forgive us our debts, and that's because the Lord's Prayer shows up twice in the Bible, in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew uses the word for debts in his record of the Lord's Prayer. Luke 
interestingly, uses a different word, which is translated trespasses. It means to wander off the path. But really, the, the, and that's why there's two sort of traditional readings of the Lord's Prayer. But either one, debts or trespasses, really what we're talking about, the idea behind both of them is this idea of sin. So let's just call it what it is. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So this is a big topic. This is a challenging topic. It's a potentially complicated topic because we're touching offenses, right? As we're talking about forgiveness, we're talking about offenses. There are several good forgiveness sermons we could preach out of just this one sentence. There's so much here. Let me just offer five thoughts on forgiveness. I'm only going to preach on the fifth. But let's just try to sort of begin to orient our thinking, our hearts, and our minds around this idea of forgiveness this morning. And I hope this will help. Thought number one, forgiveness helps both the forgiven and the forgiver. It helps both. The forgiven and the forgiver. Number two, forgiveness is replacing evil with good. It's replacing evil with good. Number three, forgiveness acknowledges our brokenness or our need. Ran into an old friend a couple weeks ago, and my clearest memory of her from our childhood was that her parents went through a very messy public divorce. And it had been probably 20 or 30 years since I saw her and ran into her, and I said, hey, do you ever see your dad? And, um, because I knew, and she knew that I knew. And um, she said, yeah, you know, we, we're back in touch. And I said, man, that's amazing. That's great. And she said, you know, I was able to forgive him. I said, that's powerful. And she said, he's, he's just a man. And I thought that was just so, you know, forgiveness acknowledges our need. Forgiveness acknowledges our brokenness. He's just a man. She's able to forgive him. And then um, number, five, number four, forgiving others is a developed ability more than a natural act. Jesus is inviting us to learn the way. To, that is to learn a skill. It's to learn an art of forgiveness. It's more a, a, a developed ability than a natural act. Our natural bent is not to forgive. Our natural bent is to demand retribution. It's to require compensation. It's to seek legal action. It's to pursue penalties, right? To make them pay for what they did to me. That's the way we're kind of naturally bent. Forgiveness is a developed ability. It's a skill. It's an art. You learn the way of forgiveness. You're not going to wake up in the morning probably and just naturally feel like forgiving. And then fifth and finally, forgiveness is how we stay together. Okay. Forgiveness is how we stay together. So much could be said about this topic. Today I want to talk about that idea. Forgiveness is how we stay together. And I want to focus on these few words, forgive us our sins. As I said a minute ago, I'm already mourning the presidential election. And here's why, friends. Every four years, this event causes division like nothing else. It causes division in families. Every year, there's different families. I'm almost always surprised at which ones they blow up around a presidential election. Every four years, this causes division in our church. 
So this, the reason I grieve this experience, frankly, is because of the division that it causes, in, even in this church, in this church family, and it grieves me. I dread election years. I pray for unusual grace to lead through election seasons, um, and I think it's important that we are clear. It is never easy for Christians to be unified The reality is that we're all part of the same family. We're all part of this brothers and sisters in Christ dynamic. We're all part of the same body. And that's true, and it's easy to say, and it's always hard to live out. It's just always hard to live out. But in election seasons, especially since the advent of social media, Christians showing up anywhere unified is rare. It just almost never happens anymore. And it's it's just nearly impossible. And here's why. Christians are all over the map on issues. You can find a Christian that believes or, or, or is standing for any kind of number of varying views on any specific issue. And when a Christian says or does something that appears to be unchristian, whether it's a nationally recognized public figure or it's your uncle on Facebook, you feel the need to distance yourself from that person, right? Don't associate me with that person because other, if you don't distance yourself from that person, you risk being sort of lumped in with them. And people believe that you think the way they believe. Most of what I read about Christians in the news, most, and a lot of what I see Christians posting on social media makes me just want to cringe. Just makes me want to cringe. Inside me, there's this voice that says, I am not with them. That's what comes out. I am not with them. Don't associate me with them. I don't want to be considered to be part of that, right? We often have people walking through our neighborhood, knocking on doors, handing out religious materials. And I don't like it. I have a very strong reaction against it. In my notes, I say I hate it. I'm not sure I should actually say that, but that's what I feel. And here's why. Because my neighbors, with whom I have been working really hard for 15 years to build honest, good relationships with... They don't know the difference between that group and that group and me. And more than once, somebody's come up on a Saturday afternoon and said, yeah, some of your boys came by the other day. And I want to say, I am not with them, right? Don't associate me with them. But here, the details get lost in the explanation. They don't know the difference. Frankly, they don't really care that much about the difference between this group and that group. They're not not interested in this. Most people just think in big, stereotypical generalities. And the big, stereotypical generality in the world about Christians right now, it's not good. It's just not good. Here are some of the questions that we'll consider today. And here I'm benefiting from a great piece I found by a pastor in the state of Washington called Jeff Peabody. Three questions. What do we do when we know we're called to unity, but we feel justifiably outraged by our brothers and sisters? What do we do? How can we keep the peace and our integrity at the same time? And how do we hold the tension of addressing the sins in others while at the same time remembering our own? These are the challenges. These are the challenges all the time, but they're especially challenging now. And I don't know any leaders. I think there might be a couple that are beginning to start on the path of charting a compelling path forward for the church. So in, in the absence of a lot of 
recognizable leaders in this space, I am once again forced to figure out a way to go forward by looking backwards. Okay, so I'm looking at our history for a model to guide us into the future. So let's turn to the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. Here's what's going on in Daniel. About 600 years before the birth of Christ is when Daniel lives. Um, he is part of the Hebrew nation. He's a Jew. The Jewish people have been defeated by other nations two times in the last 150 years. And in this time, the conquering nation deports all of the most promising Hebrew young men and women to this one place called Babylon, and they keep them in these camps there. Now, the destruction of the homeland, the Jews', the Jews homeland, and the deportation of all of their most promising young people is devastating to the Jews. But the destruction is explained by the prophets as a direct result, as a natural consequence of rebellion against God. Daniel was one of the most gifted Hebrew exiles. He's the main character in the book of Daniel. He plays prominently in a lot of the big stories that are told in the book of Daniel. But what I want to show you today is his most famous prayer, which is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. It's his most famous prayer. It isn't very famous, actually, uh, and for two reasons. One, it's a prayer of confession. And the second is that Daniel's not the one who sinned. Okay? It's a prayer of confession. Daniel prays it, but he's not the one who sinned. Let's read chapter 9 together. I'm going to read a little bit and then put the, the confession itself on the, on the screen for you. In the year, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now, here's his confession. It's long. Listen to the pronouns. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants and your prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins. 
and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, and yet we have not obeyed him. I'm at verse 15. goes a little bit farther. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made us, have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our Lord, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. This is a very challenging confession. Many other confessions in the Bible that we read make more sense to us. An example is the confession, the famous confession of King David, recorded in Psalm 51. King David, after he commits adultery and then kills the man, uh, whose wife he has just taken, who, by the way, was his own bodyguard, um, prays this prayer of confession. He prays, have mercy on me, cleanse me from my sin, and we know what David's sin is, and we feel like he should confess it, right? He should confess it. This makes sense to us. Forgive me my sin, David prays, because he's the one who has committed the sin. But Daniel's prayer is different. We only know of Daniel that he was the picture of faithful devotion to God, even when remaining faithful to God meant he was going to get tossed in a lion's den, which is probably the most horrendous kind of death you know, imaginable. And so when I hear Daniel apologizing for our sin and saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have been wicked and we have rebelled, we have turned away from your commands and your laws, I think there's something inside me, maybe there's something inside you that's like, wait, wait, Daniel, you don't have to pray that. You didn't do anything wrong. You're the model of faithfulness to God. But there's something inside us, inside me, is deeply challenged by Daniel's prayer because he's doing the opposite of what I feel like doing. What is he doing? Instead of distancing himself from those who have sinned against God, that are in his own people, he is including himself in their guilt. Instead of distancing himself from the sins of his community, he's including himself among the guilty. In other words, he's not saying, I am not with them. He's saying, forgive us. We've disobeyed you. We've misrepresented our God to the world. He's not making any distinction, friends, between his sins and the sins of others. 
whether it's these high-handed sins of public rebellion or these embarrassing secret bedroom sins that smear reputations or the sins of ignorance that just completely misrepresent who God is to the world. doesn't matter. Daniel's confessing all of it. He's owning all of it. He's like, I'm a part of all of it. Not because he's guilty, but because we, that's his perspective. We are guilty. Forgive us, Daniel prays. We have sinned. And friends, the reason Daniel's confession of collective sins of his people is more than just noteworthy, the reason that it's instructive, the reason that we should pay close attention and take a lesson from this is because in taking not just his own sins, but the sins of his people before God and pleading for forgiveness, Daniel is prefiguring Jesus Christ, who was without sin and yet assumed the guilt of the whole world, carried on his shoulders all of our sin so that we could experience forgiveness, right? When Jesus' disciples ask him to pray, or ask him, teach us to pray, Jesus responds, when you pray, say, Our Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Not forgive me my sins. That's not what he taught his disciples to pray, because that's not the way Jesus taught his disciples to live. The prayer is, forgive us our sins, because the way of life is not realized by distancing ourselves from others and insisting on our own innocence, the way of life is realized by recognizing we all need forgiveness. Okay, We all need grace before the Lord. You with me? Let's talk about racial sin for a minute. One of the ways white people shut down the conversation about racial injustice is by trying to distance ourselves from blame or from responsibility. We say things like, well, that wasn't me. I didn't say that. I didn't own slaves. I wasn't there. I didn't do those things. I didn't say that word. I'm not a racist. Now, I don't think that we who are Christian and white should punish ourselves and pretend that we personally did things that we didn't do, but I wonder if instead of first, first trying to distance ourselves from the sins of other Christians or Christians in another time or Christians in another place, I wonder if we could move the conversation forward instead of just shutting it down by saying, forgive us our sins. And then that voice comes up, but, but it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Don't you think most reasonable people recognize that? I think so. I think most reasonable people, reasonable people recognize that. But the more mature response might come from acknowledging that we who are Christian are part of a bigger family. We're part of a bigger tradition. We're part of a bigger faith. We, and that Family, tradition, faith has sinned against God and against people. The more mature response moves us past all the finger pointing and the blaming and the denying. And it, frank, frankly, it steps up to a more mature place of communal responsibility. We have sinned. I am part of a group. I am part of a team. I'm part of a family. I'm part of a church. I'm part of a nation. And what we did was wrong. 
Forgive us. Do you see, friends, how a potentially healing conversation gets arrested when someone refuses to even acknowledge the verifiable historical fact that the economic engine of this country ran on slave labor for a couple hundred years? And the founding documents were written. Whole political systems were established in which only some people's rights were taken into consideration and recognized. Do you see how acknowledging our sins versus distancing ourselves from the sins of others is the more mature response, is the response of Daniel? And furthermore, do you see how the Christian is called to an even higher place than that? Do you see how we who follow Jesus Christ are following the one who poured his energy, who poured his life into the healing, into healing the destructive power of sin, not by separating himself from the sinner, but by embracing and taking on the sinner's guilt? You never see Jesus separating himself from the notorious sinners. In fact, he gets in trouble for taking on their space and joining in with them. Where are the leaders? You know, where are the fathers and mothers and the grandfathers and the grandmothers who will model a more mature response than, it wasn't me? Have you noticed, I feel like it's easier to forgive somebody if they've also sinned in the way that I've sinned? Does that, do you feel like that ever? It's easier in those cases for me to say, I forgive you. I've done that too. I've, I've, I've made that mistake so many times. I'm, in other words, I'm freer with grace when I realize how deeply I need grace too. And when you need grace in a way that I've already recognized that I need grace, then I, I, I don't judge. Instead, I say, I get it. I understand the struggle. And I forgive you. And I'm much freer with grace in, in those kinds of situations. This author, Daniel Sahas, I've been reading, he writes, Only our ego can make the trespass of others into an unforgivable crime. Only our ego can make the trespass of others look like an unforgivable crime. The Christian is called to pursue holiness, but to root that pursuit of holiness in the knowledge that all have sinned, all are in need of the grace of God. Everybody, including me, needs forgiveness. Everybody, including me. And so when it comes to the most complex problems, and race and justice has become a very complex problem in our country, insisting it's not your fault is easy. Everybody's doing that. We can do better. As Christians, we should do better. We must do better. And Jesus shows us the way. Amen? While we're at it, let's talk about um, political conflict for a minute. In a season when many in our culture are identifying themselves according to their political convictions, because that's what you do right now. You identify yourself according to your political conviction, whether it's with a yard sign or a bumper sticker or a statement on Facebook or something like that. And our response to these kinds of actions in our family or in others or in our church, uh, Christians in other places, it's becoming more and more emotional, more and more divisive. As increasingly we see things, in other words, that make us want to say, I am not with them. 
I'm not with them. I, I want to implore us to keep our commitment to Jesus ahead, okay, ahead of our commitment to a candidate or a political party platform. So that when the road forks and the way of Jesus goes one way and the political policy goes another way, we choose the way of Jesus. And at the end of the day, in the complexity of it all, I hope that we would be able to extend grace to those with whom we disagree. Christians, friends, Christians should be able to disagree with one another without losing our integrity. And Christians are losing our integrity all over the place every day, especially right now. I'm certainly not suggesting that we overlook sin or that we accept evil. Absolutely not. I'm saying that as we work to put space between ourselves and evil and find that in the process we are distancing ourselves from other Christians, we might find an alternative to more and more division in the church by praying as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The alternative to more division is forgiveness. Forgiveness is what will keep us together. Division is the easy way to deal with conflict. We can do better. We who are part of Christ's body, Christ's church, we must do better. And Jesus shows us how. All right, so to sum up, praying this phrase from the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, it challenges us to live at a higher place. As a Christian, I'm invited to disengage from the game of blaming and shaming and distancing myself and insisting on my own innocence. I'm invited to step up to a place of greater maturity, to acknowledge not just my own sins, but the sins of my community and to ask forgiveness for our sins. And beyond that, as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to root my response in the conviction that we all need grace. We all need forgiveness. We have all sinned. And in the knowledge of my leader and my Lord and my Savior who modeled personal sacrifice for the sake of healing. Jesus modeled personal sacrifice for the sake of healing and unity. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to walk as Jesus walked. So for me, friends, it kind of comes down to simple equations sometimes. I believe in Jesus. Jesus established the church. Therefore, I'm going to pour my energy into the unity of the church. Okay. I follow Jesus. Jesus established the church. Therefore, I'm going to pour my energy into the unity of the church. And one of the ways I will do that is to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Let's pray.
Lord, we all know how to be offended. Most of us have been hurt by somebody. We could say we are justifiably offended. Our offense is real. And I pray for grace to walk at a higher road. I pray that you would hold the church together in these seasons of highlighted division. And that as we reduce complex issues to simple statements that are polarizing, you give the grace that we need to the church to be a restorative force in the world. Such challenging dynamics here, such delicacies really in the sense that they're complex, but I pray for grace for us, Lord. We could follow your way faithfully for the glory of your name and the restoration of the church and of all things. Hi, I'm Christina. And uh, the last time I saw many of you, I was very, very pregnant. Um, Since then, my baby boy, Benjamin, he is nine months old. So it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, So my family and I have been participating online together with you, and it's been so, so special having church with our little family and sharing communion together. But may I also say, it is really nice to be with some adults today as well. It's so, so good to be with you. This week, as Nate said, um, I was studying and writing about forgiveness, so I was really grateful to get the call to be invited to respond. And I had a few ideas in mind already, and I'll get to those. Uh, But then I read his outline, and then I just heard the sermon. Man, I don't know about you, but that got me. It got me. Um, My first thought is conviction for something I've done as long as I can remember. And maybe you can relate. So you see, when someone heard I was a Christian or I told someone I was a Christian, I would always feel this need to say, but not like that kind of Christian, not like them, not the kind that fill in the blank. And then I'd explain myself as a more agreeable type of Christian, you know, more palatable type of Christian. You can like me. I'm cool. I'm I'm the cool Christian. Perhaps it was my need for acceptance or control of perception. But nevertheless, I felt the need to separate myself from Christians who I disagreed with. And I caused disunity in the body because of my need to be seen as unique. And this is awful to admit, but I felt like this made me better than them. Kind of cringe, because I think how powerful could those conversations have been had I invited and entered into it and shared the need that we are all in need of forgiveness. Those thoughts, they were full of pride and they lacked empathy. And in the context of this sermon, it made it me versus them instead of us. Forgive us our sins. I have two more thoughts. Forgive even if you don't get the apology. And forgive before you feel like it. I used to think these sentiments were inauthentic, but I have learned that they are not. They take courage because we must recognize our weakness and with humility cling to the one that can take us from the harm to the healing. So let's talk about forgiving even if you don't get the apology. I've felt some deep wounds, as I'm sure you have too. And when I'm hurt, I feel like I have the right not to forgive until I get the apology or until they act like they're sorry, at least. 
but that's not what Christ calls me to do. Not when I'm hurt, not when I'm offended, not when I expect an apology, not when getting an apology is even justified. As a follower of Christ, I experience God's grace, and grace means undeserved favor. So I must be willing to forgive because I'm forgiven by God. Forgiveness doesn't justify the offense. It just means we recognize them. We really see them. We forgive them, and we love them in spite of the offense, just like Jesus did for me and for all of us. This part is still hard for me to wrap my mind around but um, in trying to figure this out, but the intentions of the other person don't matter. That's God's to handle. He alone knows the heart of a man. What matters is the outcome of the relationship in the body of Christ. Forgive even if you don't get the apology. All right, forgive before you feel like it. Um, I heard recently that forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision. Even when I don't feel like it, I know that I'm, when I'm quick to forgive, my heart soon follows. And I experience forgiveness in three ways. First, it's a decision in the way of Jesus. My willingness to forgive is an act of obedience. Second, it's a decision about how I will choose to treat others. Will I choose to keep my, my distance? Will I choose to cancel everyone who I disagree with? Or to pray like to pray like Daniel did on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, it's a decision about how we treat ourselves. There are some real physical ramifications of harboring anger and resentment. And forgiveness not only heals our minds, but it heals our bodies. It's how God created us. I'll leave you with this. When we pray, forgive us our sins, using Daniel's example, we uphold unity in the body of Christ. We take the power away from the enemy and replace evil with good. May we pray, forgive us our sins with our whole heart today and then again tomorrow.